Well, good morning, everybody. Um, for those who don't know me, my name's Duncan, and I'm very sorry for messing around with the format of the service, um, but I was just praying last night and seeking God and thinking about what I was preaching and just thinking oh, that at the end of this sermon, I hope we're going to have our hearts warmed to sing the praises of God. And so that's what we're going to do is I'm going to preach and then I hope you'll be in the same place as me and we'll be ready just to sing and shout out the praises of God. So I'm sorry about messing around with the format, but we'll see how it goes. Um, I feel very dark now. <laughs> I know we've closed curtains. Can you still see me, right? Yeah, OK, OK, good. Let's pray as we come to read from God's holy word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Genesis. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for your awesome work in creation. And we pray that you would speak to us now. You would reveal truth in your word. You would challenge us and inspire us. And you would move us to that place of worship, of wanting to sing your praises and glorify you. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would move mightily amongst us as I read from Genesis and as I preach this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began a short sermon series in Genesis 1 to 3 and we saw in Genesis chapter 1 that God was transcendent. He was glorious in power. He was able to create simply by speaking and he, he created from nothing. He was, that's how awesome he is. He's able to do something that no human can ever do. Take nothing and turn it into a glorious and awesome universe. So we saw that God was transcendent over and above creation, clearly separate. He is the creator and everything else is created. Well, this week, as we read from Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see how God is imminent. He is close to and personal with the people he's made. So last week, um, transcendent, glorious, separate, over and above everything. And in chapter 2, close to, imminent with that which he has created. So I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading actually from Genesis chapter 1. So I'm going to read from Genesis 1:26 through to the end of the chapter and the words should appear on the screen behind me. So let's read Genesis 1:26 onwards. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plot of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, if I had two hours this morning, I would be preaching four points. And my four points would be men and women made in the image of God, rest, God's imminence and closeness with creation, and fourthly, I'd talk about marriage and what Genesis 2 says about marriage. But I don't have two hours, so I'm going to do two of those four points, and I'm very sorry about that. At the end, if you really want me to keep going, I will. But I'm only going to preach, I'm only going to preach two of those things this morning. So we're going to talk about men and women made in the image of God in Genesis 1. I'm going to do a video on rest during the week. Then we're going to talk about God's closeness and personalness in creation. And then Jeff's doing a marriage sermon series later in the year where he's going to cover all the marriage stuff from Genesis chapter 2. You can ask him your questions today so he knows what he has to deal with when he comes to that sermon series. Um, so we're talking about two, just two things today. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And how is God close to and personal with his creation in Genesis chapter 2? So firstly, let's think about the image of God. In, in chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. We believe in one God, don't we? And yet God, speaking in that verse, speaks in the plural. Let us, us is plural, make man in our 
image. It doesn't say, let me make man in my image. He uses plural language when he speaks in that moment of creating mankind. And Jewish scholars struggle with that verse. Why is God speaking in plural in, in verse 26 and verse 27? Is it the royal we? That's what a Jewish person would, would have to argue, that it's the royal we, that God decides to speak in plural because he's so majestic. But as Christians, we know that this is probably, this is one of the moments where God begins to reveal the Trinity. That God is one God and yet three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Throughout Genesis 1, God acts as one being. But here he speaks as Trinity in this moment when he's going to create mankind. He speaks in the plural. He speaks as Trinity. So we believe in one God and three persons. It's as if in verse 26, the father turns to the son and says, come. It's time for this pinnacle moment in creation. Let us work together, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, in creating man in our image. And that is precisely what he does. But what does it mean then for human beings to be created, male and female, to be created in the image of God? That's a really important question. It's right here, right at the beginning of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Why does Father, Son and Holy Spirit create us in his image? Well, first thing to say is we're not talking about a physical likeness. We're not talking about physical likeness in Genesis chapter 1. In John 4, verse 24, Jesus says God is spirit. He's speaking about his Father. And, and what he means when he says God is spirit is he means that the Father is not made of human flesh. He is spirit rather than human flesh. In fact, in 1 Timothy um, 1, verse 17, there's a... a, a verse that praises God. There's a famous hymn, but God is described as invisible, immortal, God only wise. You remember that? But the word invisible is used to describe God the Father because God is spirit. So he doesn't have flesh, God the Father. He doesn't have human flesh. And we know that God is infinite. He is in all places. He's here with us right now. The Holy Spirit is here with us right now. And yet we d he doesn't have flesh in this room. When they built the temple in Israel, the Jews said, yes, we're building a building, but we know that highest heavens cannot contain our God. That's how infinite and glorious he is, that we're building a building where his special presence will be in some sense. And yet we know that he is infinite and highest heavens can't even contain our glorious, glorious God. We know that God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh. He was born as in human likeness in the world. So God the Son took on flesh in a moment in history, the Christmas story. But God is spirit. And so when we are created in the image of God, we're not talking about God having human flesh, looking like us. We're not talking about a physical likeness. So that's, not, that's what it doesn't mean. But there are three things that it does mean. Three things that it does mean to be made in the image of God. The first is human beings are created with a mental likeness to God. Just as God is intelligent and rational, he has a will. 
and he makes choices. So human beings are created with rational minds, with the ability to choose, and with a creativity like God. It's interesting, isn't it, that God creates man in his image and he creates them to have dominion over the earth. So there's kind of a, a mindful, a mental likeness to God. Just as God has reigned, so man is to reign and have dominion over all the animals that God has created. God invites us to apply our minds as human beings in order to oversee and have dominion over creation. This means whenever someone invents a machine, writes a book, paints a landscape, enjoys a symphony, or calculates a sum, or even names a pet, he or she is showing the image of God in the sense they have a mental, willful likeness to who God is. So when we're saying we're made in the image of God, we're talking about a, a, a mental likeness to God. We're also talking about a social likeness to God. I think this is why God chooses this moment to speak as Trinity, to speak in the, the plural. Let us create man in our image. He speaks as Trinity in verse 26 because God is love and within the persons of the Trinity there is love. The Father has eternally loved the Son and the Son has eternally loved the Father and God the Father and God the Son have eternally loved the Holy Spirit and vice versa. There is love within the persons of the Trinity. So God is one being and yet God is also love. If God isn't a trinity, you can't say God is love, by the way. So if in the Muslim faith, where, where there's just Allah, he's one person, one God, the only way that he could ever be love is to create. He has to create in order to love, because in eternity, before creation, there's no one to love, do you see? Whereas in Christianity, we can truly say God is love and has always been love, because he is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and they've loved each other forever and ever. So there's perfect relationship within the Trinity of God, and God is love. And so when God creates mankind in his image, he's saying, I want them to have relationship. I want them to show forth my image by their community and their love for one another. When you make a friend or when you enjoy time with your family, marriages and the church where we all come together to love one another and grow together in Christ all reflect the image of God and his social likeness that we are created in his image. We are created to shine forth the love of God in all our relationships. Now sometimes um, as a preacher, um, we can imply that there are overtly Christian and spiritual things like prayer and Bible reading and going to church. And sometimes we're guilty of making it sound like those are the most important things that you must do, the overtly spiritual things. And we emphasise those. Those things are wonderful gifts from God. They are very, very important. But sometimes we can talk about the overtly Christian and spiritual things to the neglect of the rest of our lives that God has created us for. But these first two ways in which we are created in the image of God 
speak differently into our lives, don't they? The fact that we're created in the mental likeness of God means that our jobs and our work and the things that we do are ways in which we can glorify God. Because as we do them, even when you're doing an Excel spreadsheet, you're using your mind in a way that is like God. So if you spend your job, as I used to do, doing really boring Excel spreadsheets, that's a moment for worship because you're shining forth that God has given you a mind like he has a mind. I hope many of you have more interesting jobs than that. And in whatever job you do, as you apply your mind and you make choices and you use your, your logic and your rationalism, you are, you are seeking, you are showing the, the likeness of God. And it's the same with family as well. When, you, when you're loving people in your family, you're shining forth the social likeness of God in the way that you live. Do you see? So yes, prayer and Bible reading and coming to church, all really amazing, wonderful things. But don't think that the rest of your life is without God or unimportant in the in the in God's eyes no he created that part of you and those are moments and opportunities to worship and to thank God for the way he has created you so we have a mental likeness to God a social likeness to God and a moral or spiritual likeness to God in Genesis chapter 1 man and woman male and female are created in righteousness and perfect innocence in this chapter, reflecting God's perfect goodness. His creation is very good at the end of day six, and that means man and woman are included in that very goodness. And so the man and woman that God has created have a righteousness and a perfect innocence in the Garden of Eden. Now we know that every part of God's image in humanity was tarnished by what happens in chapter 3. This moment where Adam and Eve decide to disobey the commands of God. They use their will that they've been given by God as part of their mental likeness to him. They use their choice to disobey God's commands and to eat the fruit that God commanded them not to eat from. And the whole creation goes wrong in that moment. Sin enters the world, disobedient, and the image of God that was put into mankind is tarnished in that moment. And every, every part is tarnished, the mental likeness and the social likeness. We know how relationships have been broken since that moment. But it's especially this moral or spiritual likeness to God which is tarnished and ruined by the fall in chapter 3. And so when we look around the world and we look at other people we don't necessarily see God's moral and righteousness in other people. I know when you look at me, well, I hope you don't think this all the time, but you will see my faults and my sin and my errors and my mistakes. And that's a consequence of what happened in, in the fall, that, that our image of God was ruined so that we aren't perfectly innocent and righteous in the way we live. We look around the world and we see sin. We see selfishness, we see pride and greed and hate and violence. And even when we look at ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves, when we look at ourselves, we don't see the perfect goodness of God, but we see a tarnished image of God's righteousness in us. And so the big question is, can God's image ever be restored in humanity? Can we ever see the righteousness of God in human beings ever again? Can we ever see perfect innocence in humanity ever again? And the Bible responds with a resounding yes. Something went, goes wrong in chapter 3, which we're going to talk about in detail next week. 
So the image is ruined, but there is a solution according to the Bible because we can see righteousness and perfect innocence in one man. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Colossians 1 verse 15 says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. So the idea in creation is that you would look around and every human being that you would see would shine forth the righteousness of God and the perfect innocence of God, but it all went wrong. And so God sent his son into the world to be the image of the invisible God, to be God in human flesh. So in the person of Christ, you see not a tarnished image of God's righteousness, but the perfect image of who God is. Hebrews 1 calls Christ the exact representation of God in heaven. And so in the person of Christ, the image is restored. Having lived a perfectly uh, righteous life, Jesus Christ, the image of God the Father, made atonement for sin by dying on the cross. He defeated death in the resurrection and he ascended into heaven. And from heaven, Jesus breathes out the Holy Spirit into the world so that all who believe in him receive the Holy Spirit. And that moment in the Bible is called a moment of new creation. So we have the perfect image of God in the person of Christ, the perfect image, uh, the perfect image in humanity in Christ. And then he breathes out his Holy Spirit into the world. And the Spirit comes and brings new life into the believer and a transformation. And this is how Colossians 3 verse 10 describes that transformation. This is what it says. Put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then it describes the great qualities that comes with this new image. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and most of all, over all these qualities put on love. So do you see? The image is tarnished in Genesis 3. Christ comes and says, this is what humanity, this is what perfect humanity truly looks like. He shines forth the image of God in his life, and then he gives the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can begin to restore the image of God in us as Christians. And the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, and from the hearts, our mouths speak, and we live out our lives, and we show the compassion, and kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, and love of God. I'm not saying we we get it perfect every time. I'm not saying we get it spot on, but hopefully you can see how God has transformed you. And when you live in those qualities, you are shining forth something of the righteousness and goodness of God. You are, in some way, God is restoring in you that glorious image that he gave to the first man and woman through the power of the Holy Spirit. Every human carries the image of God in some way. So ought to be treated with kindness and respect. I I just want to emphasise that. Every human in this world in some way carries the image of God. And so we ought to be kind and respectful to every single human being we meet. And yet, that image has been tarnished by sin. We ought not to neglect that truth. And that's why we need a saviour in Jesus Christ, the perfect image of the invisible God. And that's why we need the transformation of the Holy Spirit who gives us newness of life as we seek to live out again this compassionate image of God in Christ. So we're created with a mental likeness to God, 
a social likeness to God and a moral likeness to God, which can only be restored through Christ's act upon the cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit. One further thing I ought to say about the image of God, which is clear from Genesis chapter 1, is that this image is given to both men and women. In verse 27, it says, male and female, God created them. Now, it's true to say that in Genesis 1 and 2, we are introduced to the idea that men and women are different. There are parts of this passage that speaks about the differences between men and women. Even verse 27, the fact that it says male and female, he created them, means that there's a difference between the two sexes in the eyes of God. At the end of Genesis 2, God speaks about marriage. And marriage is given and defined by God as between a man and a woman. The differences between the the genders is significant in the eyes of God. The narrative of Genesis chapter 2 introduces some differences between men and women. The man is created first. And God gives him a job to work the garden and to keep it and to look after the Garden of Eden. And God gives the man a command in Genesis chapter 2. You can eat of any tree in the garden, but you shall not eat from the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. And then he creates Eve. Then he creates woman. Did you notice that? Man created, commands given, then the woman is created. The implication is that God has trusted, entrusted the man to pass on his commandments to the woman who is created later on in the story. It seems to be a deliberate choice of God to give man this responsibility rather than to create them both and then give the command. There's, 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 an, there's an understanding, an introduction to the roles and responsibilities of men and women in that sense. When woman is created, she is described as a helper fit for the man. In verse 18, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, this, I think that we can see the word helper and think that that's a patronising title, but it isn't at all. God himself, throughout the Old Testament, calls himself a helper. God loves to help. He, he, he sees people in trouble. He sees people who need lifting up. He sees, sees people who, who aren't getting things done by themselves. And he says, I will be a helper to them. And then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit himself is called the helper. And the Holy Spirit comes and helps us live for Christ. So helper isn't a patronising title. It's a godlike title. It's a title that God uses of himself. There's an invitation in Genesis 2 for women to step into the helper role, to be godly, to be like God in helping the man. Now that isn't a complete biblical theology of what it means to be male and to be female. I've opened a can of worms, I appreciate that, I've just touched on the idea. But the rest of the Bible unpacks this introduction in Genesis 1 and 2. The Bible speaks about how this works itself out in family life between husbands and wives, in marriage. And I'm going to give that to Jeff to deal with. So here's your can of worms, Jeff. You can deal with that later on in a sermon series. Feel free to ask me questions about what I've just said. And elsewhere in the Bible, it speaks about how these differences work themselves out in church life as well. Again, happy to be asked questions about that, but I'm not going to do a full biblical theology. I'm just going to say you can see that there are differences between men and women in Genesis 2 in particular. And yet, the most important thing that we're told about male and females in Genesis is in this verse, in verse 27, where both male and female 
are created in the image of God. Both men and women are equally loved by God and created by him to show his gloriousness, to show his goodness, to show who he is. They're both loved equally, both valued equally by the Creator, and both called to shine forth God's image into the world. In fact, there's a, there's a sense, isn't there, that men and women together shine forth the image of God better than if it was just one gender alone. They work together to show how awesome God is. And so I want you to be encouraged. You were created in the image of the Creator God. And if you're a Christian, you are being transformed into his likeness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's move further into Genesis chapter 2 and see the imminence and closeness of God in this chapter. And I mentioned at the beginning, in chapter 1, God is transcendent, powerful, over and above creation. With just a word, he creates But in chapter 2, God is close to the people he makes. Now, some people understand Genesis chapter 2 as looking at chapter uh, day 6 in more detail. So you've got chapter 1, and then you read chapter 2, and it zooms in on what happens on day 6. Other people understand chapter 2 as preparing a specific land within the world for man to work and Adam and Eve to be together. But for me, the most important difference between the Genesis 1 story and the Genesis 2 story is that these two stories are joined together to demonstrate two amazing things about our God. His transcendence in chapter 1, his imminence in chapter 2, his supreme power in chapter 1, his personal touch in chapter 2, his set-apartness, his holiness, his creatorness in chapter 1, and his closeness with his creation in chapter 2. Some scholars have tried to argue that there were two creation stories and the writer of Genesis, Moses, just put them together. I don't don't believe that at all. When I read these two stories, they complement each other. They work together to show us how awesome our God is. And so that's what we're going to see in chapter 2, the imminence of God, the closeness of God, his personal touch. Now, the first thing to notice is in chapter 2, God's name changes. Did you notice that God's name changes from chapter 1 to chapter 2? In chapter 1, he's just called God. He's just called Elohim. That's that's the name that he's given. But in chapter 2, he's called the Lord God. And Lord will be in capital letters in your Bible um, when you read in chapter 2 that he's called the Lord God. And that means that that word Lord really is Yahweh, which is the name that God gave to Moses. When he appeared before Moses in the burning bush, Moses says, what name? Who shall I say has sent me? And God says, my name is Yahweh. And so chapter 2 introduces the personal name of God that the Israelites are given and that we are given. We can know God by name. He's not just God. We don't know anything about him. No, he's Yahweh. He's the Lord God. We know him. He gives us his personal name in chapter 2. I think when Moses wrote down the book of Genesis, he did this deliberately to show that chapter 1 was about how glorious God is and chapter 2 is about how God draws near and we can know him personally. The second thing that stands out in chapter 2 is verse 7, which I just think is a really, really beautiful verse. The Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living man whom he had formed. 
We ought to be very humble about our origins. We're just dust from the ground, clumped together to look like a man. Humble origins. We ought to be very humble about what it is to be a human being. Imagine a child building a snowman, but with dirt. This is what's going on in verse 7 in one sense. Uh, Bringing together of dirt and dust to form the very first man. And yet, there is also something utterly spectacular about what God does in creating man and woman, in creating mankind. It's not just a child forming us like a child builds a snowman. It's God himself creating us. He is the one who's gathering together this dust to form the way we ought to look, our physical bodies. And secondly, of course, he doesn't just form us in these verses. He breathes life into our very nostrils. Now, do you remember last week I made a distinction between God creating and God making? I said only God can create, and he, create, he can create in a sense of out of nothing. There's nothing in the universe, and God speaks, and there it is. That's a power that man just cannot do. We can't create in the same way. But God also makes and forms. He takes what's already there and builds a shape. And I think you can see those two things in the way God creates man in verse 7. He forms, he makes, he takes the dust and forms it into a particular shape. There's something imminent and close and caring and quite wonderful about thinking about God forming this man. And of course, when we imagine that, when we imagine that moment, what we're actually not thinking about is God just playing about in the dirt. What we're thinking about is God choosing tiny little particles of dust in order to build bones and muscles and flesh and skin and each time choosing the precise tiny little particle of dust in order to build together this glorious human being whom God is making. I don't know, it's something that moves me to worship in thinking about that moment as he does that. He forms, he makes in this process. And then he does something that is just so wonderfully unique and powerful and glorious that none of us can do. He breathes life into this man. You know, we can go out, not today, but on a snowy day, we could go out and build a snowman, couldn't we? But unless we're animators on the snowman, we can't actually create life. We can't turn the snowman into an actual moving human being. So God does the forming and he does an awesome job, far better than I would do, of course. And then he does something only the creator can do. He breathes life so that this man that he has formed comes to life and is a living being. This is a picture of God's closeness, his love. It's a picture of the detail of God in creation, but it's also the picture of him as a supernatural holy creator who is awesome and breathes life. Do you know, in the womb, when you first had life, there's a scientific explanation for what was going on there. But truly what was really happening is God was breathing life into you. It says, David says, that God knit him together in his mother's womb. God knit you together, that detail, that close creation of you. But he also breathed life into you. That life came from him. It didn't come from anybody else. No one else is able to to do that. But it was God himself breathing life into you. Do you know the same is true that when you had new life in the Holy Spirit, when you became a Christian, 
It was God who breathed into you. Jesus breathed into you the Holy Spirit. He breathed out the Holy Spirit upon his disciples in John's Gospel. And that's a picture of how we receive new life as Christians. God breathes into us. So human beings ought to be very humble. And yet we are wonderful and precious in the sight of our breath life-giving God. Now then God, having created the man, plants a wonderful garden for humanity. There's rivers in this garden. There's, there's precious stones. You see those mentioned gold, bdellium and onyx. But the detail I really love about this creation moment is in verse 9. Out of the ground in the Garden of Eden, the Lord makes to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Isn't that really interesting, those two details? He springs, he, there's trees that come up with fruit in them. So he, he creates food for human beings. There's good, it's good for food. But also those trees are pleasant to the sight. Why does that matter? Like, isn't, surely the trees are just about having the fruit and surviving. But no, for God, he, does, he creates something beautiful in this garden. He doesn't just go, oh, slapdash, here's a, here's a rubbishy tree, but it provides the fruit. Here's, here's a ugly carrot just cropping out no he creates trees that are good for food but also pleasant to sight do you know our god cares about beauty we've sung already this morning about our beautiful god he is a beautiful god but he cares about beauty for us he creates trees in the garden specifically so man and woman wander about and go whoa look at that tree that isn't that tree pleasant to the sight that's amazing i wonder whether they talk like that maybe you should do that this afternoon go for a walk and go oh pleasant to sight tree that god had created but god cares about beauty I think he enjoys it when humans create art, whether that's pictures or photos or music or buildings as a, a good architect. If you're an artist, that's part of God's image in you. He created beauty and he's created you to also create beauty in his image. I'm a rubbish artist. If you asked me to draw something or paint something, it would be rubbish. There would be very little beauty in it. But I know that there are people who are wonderful artists in this room. I know amongst our youth and kids as well, we've got great artists. And that's part of God's way. He has created them. Now in verse 15, God takes the man and gives him a job. And that means work is good. It's hard because of the fall. There's a curse that comes on work in the fall. But work in and of itself is good. A man's job is to keep this beautiful garden that God has created with, with woman as his helper and the Lord's instructions given in verses 16 and 17. I'm just going to push very gently into chapter 3 now. Because in chapter 3, God not only gives the human beings life, he not only forms them and breathes life into them, he not only plants them a great garden to live in, he not only gives them work, but in Genesis chapter 3, God walks in the garden that he has created for man. Isn't that beautiful to think about God? The transcendent God who spoke the world into, into creation is close and breathes life into the human being and then he walks with man and woman in the garden of Eden. And so as I draw to a close, here's what I want to finish with. God's desire is to be close to you, to be in relationship with you. Now, we broke that relationship with sin. We rejected God and wandered away from him. But the Lord God, Yahweh, the name of God, made a way for us to be reconciled to God the Father. 
This is why Christ died on the cross. He died in such a way that he dealt with sin so that we might be restored to relationship with him. We might know God as Father. When I pray Heavenly Father, those aren't just words to me. That's who God is to me. He is my Father. I know him. I know his love. I've been restored and reconciled into relationship with him because Christ died for me to take away my sin that was a barrier and brought me into reconciliation with God. I know him. I have a relationship with him. Through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, I have a promise and you have a promise. If you are a Christian in this room, here is a promise to you. You will one day walk in a garden city with God. Just like man and woman in Genesis 3 walked in this garden with God. That is a promise to you. That you will one day walk with God. Or more precisely, he will walk with you closeness of relationship perfect relationship restored Eden will be restored but it will be even better actually because every person will have used their mental likeness to God to choose to be there they've chosen to believe in Christ whereas the man and the woman were just formed in the garden and then when they made a choice they chose to disobey God every person in the heavenly city would have chosen to follow Christ and they would have been made new in him they would have been full of the Holy Spirit living out compassion and love our social likeness will be completely restored in this heavenly city we will truly love one another with the love of Christ in perfect righteousness so each person will reflect the image of God as they truly always ought to be Do you know this heavenly city will be even better than Eden? Because each person will understand that the only reason they got there was because of the love and mercy of Christ. He was prepared to lay down his life for them that they might enter into the heavenly city. This man and woman in Genesis 2 didn't know that. They they hadn't seen that history played out. But we will know that. We will know about the mercy of God. And so the garden will be recreated. The garden city with God at the end of time will be better even than this situation in Eden before the fall. Brothers and sisters, this glory is still to come. And yet we know we can experience the closeness of God today. His Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within your heart. And when we gather, there's something special about what God does as the Holy Spirit moves because we're joined together through spiritual connection in the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, you can, you can have a relationship with God every day of the week. And there's something unique and special about the gathering of Christians to worship God and the power of the Spirit in that moment. And so that's why I wanted us to go into a time of worship because God is going to be close to us in that time of worship. I want to celebrate his closeness. I want, we're not just singing of his beauty and his glory and his power. We are singing songs about that because it's a creation set list that we put together. But we're singing about how this glorious God is close to us and loves us and has breathed life into us. He loves us and cares for us. And that's why I want to worship now. I want to sing praises to my God, who is the transcendent God, who is the imminent God, who is the God who longs to walk with us and he makes a way through Christ our Saviour that we might walk with God and one day we will walk with him in the heavenly city. I just want to sing his praises. So would you stand with me? I'm going to lead us in prayer band. Can I get out the front? It'd be great. Let's move into this time. I want to say this just before before I pray, if you are not yet a believer, please choose Jesus today. May the image of God be restored in you. And may you know God's closeness. May you know God's imminence in your life. For that is what Christ died for. Shall we pray into what we've read this morning? And then let's sing together and praise and worship him.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the two creation stories next to each other in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We thank you for the close personal love you show in Genesis chapter 2. Thank you that you breathed life into humanity. Thank you that you formed him from dust so beautifully and, and detailed and caring and kindly. We just want to praise you, Lord God. And I pray as we praise you, as we sing to you, you would breathe life into us, that the Holy Spirit would come and have his way in our hearts and our lives, that we would worship true in spirit. Lord, we pray for the charismatic. We pray for gifts of prophecy and tongues in this moment. As you breathe upon us, we ask that you would move. But Lord, we pray more than anything, we would know how close you are, your love and your kindness and your power. Come Holy Spirit, move in this place, we pray, as we sing your praise together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.